Hello everyone and Happy New Year. Welcome to an all new episode of Insurance Uncovered, our first in 2023. This podcast is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies and is your source for insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. I'm your host, Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering insurance reform, how a new law could stabilize the insurance market for Florida homeowners, and empathy in workers' compensation, the new approach to handling claims in a way that leads to better experiences for injured workers. But first in the news, the first of the year marked a wave of new bills going into effect, including one with major insurance reforms in Florida. After a special session in December, Florida legislators passed Senate Bill 2A to strengthen and stabilize the state's struggling insurance market. The new law addressing property insurance eliminates one-way attorney fees and assignment of benefits contracts to significantly reduce abusive lawsuits, driving up costs for all Florida consumers. Insurance Information Institute CEO Sean Kevelin recently spoke with the Weather Channel, where he characterized AOB as legalized fraud. We need to inform consumers and constituents that this is really bad for them. This is legalized fraud that's weighing on their insurance bills and weighing on their ability to have insurance at all. Although the new law does not address the auto side of the market, it's been described as one of the most consequential reforms to Florida's property insurance in more than two decades. NAMIC, along with others in the Florida business community, worked closely with the governor's office and other lawmakers to get these necessary changes supporting consumers and the property insurance market. Well, a new report finds the death toll from Hurricane Katrina was actually much lower than originally estimated, while the cost was much higher. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says estimates of fatalities in 2005 and 2006 indicated there were more than 1,800 deaths. But as more information has become available, NOAA has revised that number and now says Katrina was responsible for just under 1,400 direct and indirect fatalities. And yet, while fatalities may have been lower, the economic cost is significantly higher than previously reported. In 2006, the National Hurricane Center estimated the economic cost of Hurricane Katrina at approximately $81.2 billion. Yet the most current damage estimates from NOAA indicates that Katrina was responsible for $125 billion in 2005 dollars. Adjusting for inflation, the new figure equates to about $186.3 billion in 2022 dollars, putting Katrina's ranking as the costliest hurricane in U.S. history and among the deadliest hurricanes on record. President Joe Biden has declared a state of emergency in California as the state braces for more severe weather after a week of torrential downpours and damaging winds that has killed at least 12 people. The National Weather Service says those in northern and central California are still in the path of what it calls a relentless parade of cyclones. Across the state, nearly 425,000 people are without power, and more than 20,000 have been evacuated from their homes. Still, despite the heavy rains, the storms won't be enough to officially end California's ongoing drought, putting the state in a unique situation where it's both in a drought and flood emergency at the same time. 
There's a new move to change the way workers' compensation claims are handled that leads to better experiences for injured workers. And Emory Industrial's chief risk officer, Dr. Claire Musselman, is leading the charge. On today's Unscripted, NAMIC CEO Neil Aldrich talks with Dr. Musselman about her move to change the workers' comp system into an advocacy-based model built on empathy. So joining me today on the podcast is Dr. Claire Musselman. She's the chief risk officer at the Emory, Indu- at Emory Industrial Services. Claire is leading the charge in the way that workers' comp claims are handled which ultimately will lead, hopefully, to better experiences for injured workers and also their employers, ultimately, as well. She's a national speaker on these topics, including also leadership and self-development, insurance, and other issues. So, Claire, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Sure. So, you've got kind of an interesting background. So, tell us how you got involved in the workers' compensation industry specifically. Well, Neil, when I was in kindergarten, I mean, that's what I drew on my picture of what I wanted exactly. to be when I grew up. No, yeah, I'm just like everybody kidding. else in the insurance industry, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was my uh, career ambition at age five. Um, mm-hmm. No, it, very sincerely. Um, so I was a foster to adopt child. And so I have always made it my goal in life to make good things happen for people. And I think that the foster care industry and Department of Human Services mimics the workers' compensation industry pretty well. You've got you know, adjusters that are kind of like social workers. You've got a system that's designed with good intent. Uh, Both avenues do have some profiting off of human suffering that also exists, but innately you've got a lot of people that want to make good things happen for people. And I see that, and it only takes one person to make a difference in the life of an injured worker. It takes one person to make a difference in the life of a child. So my paths are very similar. How I actually got into the workers' compensation space was my doubles partner. Growing up, I played tennis from like age three to 18, and uh, her dad actually owned a defense law firm. And so after I graduated from college, I didn't do so great on my LSAT and (laughs) happened to go tour Europe, came back, was working in a small town bar. And uh, her dad walked in and said, what are you doing? I said, I don't know. I bombed the LSAT. I think I want to be an attorney. I want to do family law. And he said, well, I run a work comp practice. Why don't you come work for us for a year? And if you still want to be an attorney, I will help you with your LSAT. And that was the dawn into workers' compensation. And it's been a really uh, fun and enjoyable experience. I have really enjoyed the people that I've met along the way, and it's become a really great family throughout the industry. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, little path. Like everybody else, it is. I, I always, <laughs> except for the the actuaries in our insurance industry, like everybody else that works in it, it's like this accidental career for everybody. Uh, but people it tend is. to stay in it for sure. Yeah. Uh, that's it's an interesting yeah. it's interesting in that regard. So you you were also a claims adjuster, I guess, at one period of time. And so that gave you some probably some insight into kind of the work you do today. So talk a little bit about that and kind of how you brought that into, you know, some of your thoughts on the whole workers' comp system now. Absolutely. So it's fun that you say that. So my I did I was an adjuster for a long time and I loved it and I climbed the ranks in that in that regard. Um, I'm a professor at Drake University, and I was actually telling my students that being an adjuster was probably one of the most gratifying things. And so I've had a couple of them reach out to me in the past 24, 48 hours saying, hey, we want to be adjusters. Like, how can we go do this stuff? And I'm like, yes, it's all about how you package this product of what is it to be an adjuster? And so I, so after I was a paralegal at that law firm, I had gone to Iowa's workers' compensation symposium and happened to run into um, a gentleman that runs a very large TPA. 
And he had said, why don't you come be an adjuster? Uh, I think if you like doing good work, if you like working for the injured workers, you could do some really good work for us. And so that was kind of how I moved into being an adjuster. And I've always approached it from the human element. Like I've always believed that one person can really change the difference. Most smiles are started by another smile. So you get to be that smile in somebody's life. I still remember my very first my very first injured worker, his name was Ralph. His wife had passed away a year before. And so while we were going through his claims process, I just like to check in on Ralph because I wanted to know how he was doing. I didn't know what his Mm -hmm. support system looked like. And again, I think it all goes back to like my upbringing and my background of just, you know, wanting to be seen, heard, acknowledged and valued as a child going through a really weird space and understanding that that's exactly what injured workers feel like. So I've always kind of carried that in. One of the other things that I just really liked doing is my mom always taught me to always send a card, like a thank you note. And so I've always sent my injured workers cards. That is something that we ended up doing as I progressed through the claims process and had was a team lead and a department head and a VP and all of that stuff. That's something that I've always made sure that was available if my adjusters ever wanted to send out a handwritten note. It is absolutely a lost art. And my mother and my grandmother would be very happy because we still do it to this day. But it's really important to me because it makes people feel seen, heard, acknowledged and valued in that moment. And nobody does it. So it really sets you apart and it helps people feel really special. And so just by doing those little things or if I ever had the ability, I would try and go meet my injured workers, which is kind of a lost art as well. I've never been scared that they're going to come hurt me. I've also (laughs) never really done anything that would... um, have them do that to me. Like I've always been the over communicator. I have a high emotional intelligence also due to my background. Like you get to know situations based upon tone of voice, what's going on. You become a hyper empath almost of paying attention to what people are doing. And so in that space, I've always tried to over communicate. So when I'm issuing payments to injured workers, I let them know that it's coming because any chance that I could find to alleviate the fear of the unknown for them, I knew would give them a better outcome. We would have a better chance to get along And it just made their recovery easier because they knew what to expect. And most people in this space just really want to know what's happening. And we do not do a great job of communicating that all the time. So over communication was something that I was never faulted for doing. Yeah. So that's that's kind of how I. And and I do think it's perhaps a little unique, especially in the workers comp space um, to have, to have that kind of approach to things. So, so you, you you bring that background to, you know, what you deal with today you know, not only what you're teaching, but also this, you know, on the on the workers comp side, do you so some of that is you, you almost describe like some psychological issues of the injured worker. Yeah. How, do, how, how does understanding that like help you manage that claim versus sure. it's a broken leg? Here's the payment. See you next Tuesday. Right. Yeah. I mean, so okay. so t- just talk through a little bit about that a little bit. Got it. It's a little so bit different. It is a little bit different. So if you go look in the mirror you're going to have somebody that's going to stare back at you that has psychosocial issues. Really sorry to tell everybody that it is not just a thing. But if you think about it on a regular basis, we all have multiple balls in the air, whether you're a parent, you're caring for children, you're caring for adults, you've got financial things going on. You might have strains in your relationships, whether that be familial strains or relationship strains could be divorce. Uh, There's just so many things that play into this Uh, medical background, Uh, Maybe you have an extensive knowledge of the work comp system, or maybe you don't at all. All of these factors come into play when we're dealing with somebody who's injured, let alone the fact that we haven't brought in the employer yet. 
but yeah. what is their relationship with their employer? How well do they get along with their boss? What's the camaraderie like? What's the organizational behavior of the organization? What does that look like? And so when we start looking at it from that, from an injured worker's recovery, it kind of goes back to that fear of the unknown. So what do we know about someone? So if you give me an injured worker, let's say that they've broken their leg or they need an MRI, and we know that this person is fearful because they've never had an MRI before, they don't know what to experience, they may be uh, claustrophobic. Okay, so then what do we do with that? So from my standpoint, as an adjuster, I would hire a nurse so that they have somebody that can support them while they're going through this appointment. You've got somebody that can help them outline what to expect and then somebody that can follow up afterwards to talk to them about what's happening through their care and their process. Um, I find this similarly when people express that there's any type of financial issues or financial strain or they're fearful about where their next check is going to come from. A lot of times people forget once people go on work comp, they still have to pay their insurance premiums. And that might not just be for themselves, but it might also be their parents or whoever is their dependents, could be kids, stepkids, et cetera. And this right. ends up creating a pretty big ripple effect and we forget that. So what can you do to help alleviate that fear? Well, walk people through how you calculate their wages. Show them, hey, here's the wages I got from your employer. Does this look representative? All right, let's walk through this together. You can screen share. You can send them a copy in the mail. You could send them a copy via email. Like this is their wages. So how we communicate this and show people how to do this effectively is really important. And it all goes back to communication. But taking somebody with you to try and create consumable information so that they understand what they're qualifying for and how to do and how it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So if you take somebody through, this is how we calculate your wages. Are you with me? Okay, so here's the 26 weeks. We've averaged them. Do you see where I'm coming from? Does this make sense to you? And you take them with you through the process. Then if there's any availability to give somebody the right to choose from an injured worker standpoint, this whole wheelhouse of workers' compensation is heavily based in statutes specific to the state in which the, in the employee is injured. If you can give somebody an avenue of choice along this process, it pays off dividends. So if we can say, all right, you know what, Joe, you're going to end up getting, here's your weekly wage. You're with me. This is how we calculated it. All right, what day did you normally get paid? Oh, you got paid on Fridays. Okay, well, I can make sure that we get this check into your bank account on Fridays. Or do you want a paper check? Or do you need a debit card? What's going to work best for you? And you try to create avenues where people feel that they have a choice. So they feel empowered along this process to make a decision to help be a part of their healing journey. And this is areas that I think we've fallen off on where we're just like, well, I pay people on Thursdays, so you're going to get your check then. Okay, well, is that what they're used to? Because the whole goal, and I think I've seen this more on the employer side, is I just want my people taken care of. And I'll micromanage you to make sure that they're taken care of. But why don't we inherently do this or innately have the ability to want to give people information that they understand so that then there's not six, seven, eight, nine, ten phone calls that are follow-ups like I didn't get my check. Or if you're going to issue it, so let's say we've talked to Joe. Joe wants to have his check issued on Fridays. All right, so on Thursday, I'm going to shoot Joe a quick text or an email that just says, hey, Joe, just want to make sure your check's going to be deposited tomorrow. Just letting you know. It helps alleviate the fear of the unknown, helps outline an expectation, and you're building trust, accountability, and credibility by communicating that you're doing what you say you're going to do. And in this space, that is probably the most important thing possible, setting up good expectations and accountabilities and following through by doing what you say you're going to do. Yeah, that's interesting. And then that gets you, I, I would assume, down the road towards what benefits do you see that you can quantify, you know, for others who are thinking about maybe changing the way we handle claims or whatever in the comp space. 
I, I would assume, I, I know one of the employer's goals here in all, all of these, and one of the insurer's goals is always to diminish any litigation risk that we might have. Absolutely. I, I, I'm, I'm assuming your thought process is the, the better you communicate, the more you kind of develop a bit of a relationship, the more you're reducing that risk. Absolutely. So the first year that we ever implemented this plan, uh, we dropped our litigation rate 35% up front, which is huge. I mean, you think about yeah. the dollars that go into this. In addition to that, it helped build our relationships with our employers because not only were we doing a better job of communicating overall, which reduced the litigation rate, we helped the employer kind of build those bonds back with their injured workers so that they knew much more transparently what was going on during their recovery process. And this means like bringing it back out more to like a 20,000 foot view. So it's not just the HR rep or the work comp coordinator, but getting that injured workers direct supervisor involved. One, to make sure that they're checking in on their people because you hired this person to be part of your team. I don't care about their HR issues or whatever, because once they've been injured, my number one goal is getting them back to work and back to life. So anything else kind of falls to the wayside. So do you check in on them? Have you had your team check in on them? Nobody has to ask for medical information. They're just simply asking, hey, how are you? Or, hey, Joe, we miss you. Very simple concepts. But by doing that, there's more transparency into what's going on in the healing process. So it is, hey, we know Joe's got a follow-up appointment tomorrow. Hey, Joe, you know, we're thinking of you. We hope your appointment goes well. And by building that camaraderie, Joe now has an increased incentive to want to be part of his team again. So you start to see the lost work days. And I think they diminished by about 21 days per lost time claim. So that ends up being very quantifiable from an employer standpoint and modification standpoint, moderating, and the dollars out, dollars in. It's a yeah. big deal. Yeah, Let alone the fact I've said to a, a lot of employers lately, because we're in a captive space, where I'm like, you show me your injured worker and the five people that they hang out with most, and I'll show you how to protect your six, because there is a big piece of this that it will impact your organizational behavior and the culture that exists within your people. And it only takes one claim to make it go to the haze, to go haywire and go to the wayside. So how that one person feels, they might be very influential with their people and we never know who that person is. And so people are very loud now, very vocal on social media and whatnot. So it really is about taking care of that human being, that one person within that group. And how do you get others to also buy into that care, compassion, concern nature as well? Yeah, that's, you know, it's one thing to to manage these claims, you know, from the human side, because it's sort of the right thing to do. And, you know, you want to treat people with respect, of course, and all of these kinds of attributes. But the other side of it is there's an actual benefit to it. You you can decrease your litigation risk and you can maybe get Joe back to work quicker. Uh, yeah. Those are you, generally speaking, the two kind of primary goals to this whole system, right? You, you, you help compensate for the injury that occurred and then you get them back, you know, hopefully back to employment as quick as you can. Uh, and and by focus. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, the unintended consequences that we forget about or the other things that we forget about is that if you implement this, adjusters like their jobs better. If we start to phrase it where, hey, you're here to help people at exercise with empathy and care, compassion and concern, and we're doing things to try and help and we're trying to front load information so people aren't so reactive, you've got an employee engagement increase on the adjusting side yeah. and have those leaders pouring into those people as well. And that injured worker is more engaged with their employer as a result. So you have an increase in employee engagement there. So there's these residuals that exist 
that we don't necessarily quantify because nobody really thinks about how engaged the adjusters are until you see that turnover is almost 60% in the adjusting desk right now. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to start looking at it when you start to pull out, all right, so we see quantifiable metrics very easily with a litigation rate and lost time days and how quickly somebody is healing, how quickly you see claim closure, and we see from that landscape. Well, then when you start to look at the others, where you start to look at how engaged are teams, how happy are your employees, what does that look like? What's your Gallup Q12 showcase for your yeah. adjusting team? And you start to look at it, that it starts to pay off even more than it is from a simple ROI on litigation rate, lost time days, et cetera. Yeah. And if we phrased it like this, we might see a lot more Gen Z millennial want to <laughs> come into this space and we wouldn't have so much of the generational gap. But yeah, yeah, no doubt. I digress. <laughs> well, you're you're right. I mean, there's no no question that the entire industry is trying to find ways to attract new talent, and 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 you don't often hear it cast as the you know we talk about the insurance industry being this noble enterprise and puts people you know lives back together when they need it the most, but that's sort yeah. of a new thing for the insurance industry, generally speaking, to talk in those terms. So it um, is. especially probably even less common when you get to the workers comp side of the world very uh, true and i've you know insurance companies are here to restore the livelihood of people uh workers compensation is the complete illustration of that this yeah. is where we take people's lives where they've been broken or damaged in a very vulnerable unforeseen circumstance and we get to give we get to give them the opportunity to get back to work back to life and restore them to being functional contributing members of society it's really yeah the best job you could possibly have. You're here to make good things happen for people. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So so talk a little bit about, you know, you have a carrier or employer, you know, looking at maybe examining their claims handling practices. And, you know, what's your first couple of tips that you would give somebody to how to maybe rethink, you know, what their, their approach? I know some of the things we've already talked about, perhaps, but sure. you know, where, where would you start? So I would start by asking all right, so when you're looking at, all right, we've got policies, procedures, et cetera, what are your key performance indicators and are those actually reflective of what you want them to measure? And I say that because we tend to measure in a very hard dollar ROI standpoint, but it's so much bigger than that. So I would say, what are you actually measuring and how do you get your buy-in of your adjusting team by measuring in that capacity? So then I would look at what is, where do your adjusting teams spend their most time? And if you haven't made any technology enhancements lately, we've got issues. I do know that there are certain like TPAs, for example, that still have their adjusters filing paper EDI forms for state mm -hmm. form filings. It's 2022. If you haven't yeah. made that tech mm -hmm. investment yet, you're not going to get Gen Z or the younger or older millennials that are gonna to wanna to come work for you because that's not how they should be spending their time. That is not financially incentivizing for a carrier, for a TPA, et cetera, that kind of stuff. You can't be 40 years behind the scene anymore. It's just not gonna work. I did right. an interview earlier today with some students that are working on a risk management platform and they were talking about, you know, where do you see the biggest need for tech? Um, if we aren't going to start really looking at the state form filings as an issue across all 50 states and making sure that that's not necessarily an adjusting function, function, it should be a claim system operating entity that, you know, most people have been doing this for 20 years already. Yeah. The fact yeah. that some still exist, there are technology things that exist that I know it can take like $150,000 to do that. But think about the time that you're gonna lift off of all those adjusting desks oh, that yeah. can then 
make it so that they can be more impactful on that human element, which is where you're going to start to see the greatest return on investment. And if we haven't started to invest in human capital yet, then we didn't learn enough lessons from the pandemic and coming out of that because there is no work-life balance anymore. It's a work-life blend. And that exists in the injured worker space as well as the adjusting space. And so when we start to see these more as like a a blend, I think you're going to start to see better components. But I would start by looking at what are your key performance indicators? What are you measuring? The checkbox audit mentality is dead and is not the wave of the future. You've got to start looking at what metrics can you actually quantify and how do you get your adjusting teams to buy in and the leaders that lead those adjusting teams. So you've got the right empathic, compassionate leadership that's pouring into these people because that's where you're going to start to see the biggest return on investment and the biggest difference. Also language. What are you calling people? What do those job descriptions say? You're not a paper pushing processor. You're a single handed game changer that makes good things happen for people. And that ends up being quantifiable. So how do you start looking at the language? What are your claims handling practices look like? What language are you using in there? Because you can use empowering terms that are going to motivate people or you can keep things the way we've always done and continue to watch this industry continue to be gray and dark and dreary or start adding some flavor and some color where you want to get people attracted into this space to go do great things, it starts with language and the tone in which we communicate that of what is important through our key performance indicators, our policies and procedures and what we're measuring. That's that's a great place to start and and really and a great place to end here for our podcast today. <laughs> sure. Uh, really good message, Claire. Uh, Dr. Claire Musselman, again, from the uh, Emory Industrial Services, also professor at Drake University, uh, where NAMIC Scholarship, the Foundation Scholarship, has given scholarship to a couple of students at Drake over the years. So keep them Thank coming um, and, yes. and keep them uh, applying for the scholarship as well. But we Got appreciate it. your time today and your thoughts. And, and I would also just encourage you to keep up your message here. It's a good one for the industry to hear. And that's a wrap for this week's episode of Insurance Uncovered. We'll be back on January 25th with more insurance news and perspective. Until then, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a terrific day.